This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. This episode of Real Estate Is Your Business is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. Hello, my name is Rebecca Fitz. I'm the principal consultant at the Wild West of Retail, and what I love about real estate is the final product. One topic we haven't covered yet on the show is retail and its effect on real estate. Some will argue that e-commerce is causing a retail apocalypse, while others are simply saying that we're undergoing a retail evolution. In today's conversation, you'll hear from a retail expert that's advising small and large brands on the trends that are affecting the industry. From New York City, you're listening to Real Estate Is Your Business, powered by Preview, a smart online real estate brokerage providing expert advice without the high fees. With Thomas Kutzman and Scott Pollock. Rebecca, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Some would say you're a retail expert, a mall expert. What is your opinion of the apocalypse in retail? Sure. First of all, people are not loving that term. So, um, and I'll kind of follow that lead. I think that um, it's it's not a full-on disaster yet. It really is that there are just a lot of changes going on. Um, I do think from a real estate perspective, you know, there is such a surplus of real estate out there, retail real estate, that uh, we do need to find our way out of that particular issue. And then I think that then there's a whole nother set of issues that are really particular to retailers themselves that are outside of real estate, but might hamper them actually uh, wanting to take on a lot of overhead, if that makes sense. And I'm more than willing to talk about both sides of that. And as it relates to this trend of you know, e-commerce versus brick and mortar stores or repurposing these stores, um, what's your opinion of these digitally native brands starting to open up stores? I think it's the natural progression of things. You know, consumers really want to have an experience with brands. And you you can have a great experience online. And I think their websites, most of them are very, very savvy. Uh, but at the end of the day, you really want to touch and feel. And to kind of pivot over to some of the things that I said are purely retailers' problems and not really retail real estate problems is the amount of t- returns folks are getting. And so, you know, it's not the only reason to open a brick and mortar store, but certainly having someone come in and experience it, if it's apparel, try it on, if it's something else, touch and feel, play with it. And then, you know, you have that experience and you'll continue to order online. You'll probably boost your online sales, but that there's been this experience. And there's a lot of talk. These are not my words, but I I think it probably rings true that there really are no pure plays anymore and that everybody will dip their toe into some retail environment or some experiential environment, uh, which kind of goes against that, you know, we're having this, you know, disastrous experience right now. So does that mean when you look at these stores that the digitally native brands are opening, is it more of a a marketing mechanism than a distribution point? 
this is where I think digital natives have kind of gotten ahead of the retail real estate ball, and that is that they they have inventory systems that speak to each other. They're more prepared to go into uh, a brick and mortar store and really optimize it for what it is. So it's everything. It's marketing. It's a sales center. It's a distribution center. So they're really taking advantage of, again, another overused word, but omni-channel. They're taking that that physical retail and they're using it to hopefully the, the top of their capabilities. I'm you know, the companies that seem to be thriving and opening real estate are the kind of digital natives, as you said, the ones like a Warby Parker opening up spaces in very expensive real estate in Manhattan. And yet their their sales are through the roof, um, even compared to, to others in, in similar spaces. What is it that you think kind of the, the traditional retailers aren't able to, to do? Or why is it that they're not able to evolve in the way that a e-commerce business evolved to retail, that the retailers couldn't transform themselves in the same way? Great question. You know, I don't know. I do know that they're beginning to push the experience, but I don't know if they have the the same handle on it as some of these digital native brands. And I also, this goes into kind of even a, a further, <laughs> further out there concept, but, you know, how loyal are people to brands nowadays? And it seems like, you know, instead of being, you know, down with Victoria's Secret, and that's all you buy, and that's all you'll ever buy, you're more than willing to uh, try adore me and have them send you some great, you know, underwear or pajamas or whatever it is, uh, you know, through the mail, or maybe you, you know, hit the, hit their guide shop in New York. So I think there's some of that going on as well. And, you know, retail is as cyclical as any other environment. Mm-hmm. People are attracted to these new brands, but I don't think that you go to uh, a Victoria's Secret store and you have a guide shop experience where you're getting measured. Yes, all the associates have measuring tapes. Um, I, you know, Nike isn't a great example because they are doing all these things, but it's not the same as going to an Outdoor Voices, which is really, really boutique and there's probably a really planned experience, whether you just went in to buy a pair of leggings or if you're going to go on a run that night with them. Yeah. Does that bring up a question around what is that customer experience now when people think of retail? Because obviously the traditional method was you walked into a store, you were looking for something specific or just browsing. Now people are browsing all the time on their phone, on their computer. Um, That experience change has also driven a lot of more data for the e-commerce brands versus the traditional model. Does that give them a better insight into creating those customer experiences now in a brick and mortar sense? than a traditional would? Uh, You know, I would think so. And there's also a lot of talk, again, more on the what are the issues that retailers are having side of the business. But it certainly speaks to to the overhead and having a space, which is... Maybe you did collect all this data and then you don't have somebody to to mine it, if you will, or you're not really sure what to do with the data once you get it. And again, I think these digital native brands have gotten out ahead of the ball and not only are collecting the data, but are crunching the data. And I do think that it delivers to what the experience is and really listening to your consumer in many ways. You're getting it, you know, through their their sales through their Instagram, you know, they're really communicating with their brands. And I think if you're, you know, a, an older brand, you probably weren't always communicating that way. You were, you were saying, I'm going to put a store up, I'm going to put stuff in it, I'm going to hang a shingle out, I'm going to have, you know, decent sales associates, and we're going to sell lots of stuff. And 
And that model really needs to change. You know, I feel like the, the idea of data is something that's so popular. It's like, oh, data first. Everyone loves data. And yet, I feel like that's such a overused statement because no company starts out by saying, we're going to focus on data. Um, it's the companies that are thriving are the ones that are focused on a customer experience, focusing on a unique product, on building something that means something. Um, and the data might be helpful to optimize over time. But that doesn't seem to be where, you know, all these brands that are starting to kind of take over retail in the kind of modern era are starting from. Agreed. Agreed. Now, you were very involved with a very unique mall, right? So when people think of malls, they think of these suburban malls, these big sprawling locations. Um, But you were very involved in the build out and creation of a mall at the epicenter of one of the largest trans- transit hubs um, in New York City. Um, could you give us a, like a little bit of background on that? Sure. So Westfield had a, a great presence downtown before 9-11. I know that the um, owners, developers, operators really felt like they wanted to go back into this urban market, which is New York City. And... Um, made the arrangement with the Port Authority to do just that, um, and Calatrava um, to build uh, what is downtown, which is now known as the World Trade Center Oculus. Um, I think that it is, uh, it was a huge, you know, on take uh, for a mall owner and operator. And really, you know, there are a couple of differences, one that you really pointed out, which is it's not really a shopping center. I think, you know, that's what Westfield's known for. Um, But number two, that um, it's also not most malls are owned outright by or there might be a joint venture. Uh, You know, this is a public private partnership. So that really also changed the dynamic of what it is. And then thirdly, it it is a commuter hub and um, probably, you know, don't quote me at a cocktail party on this, but probably one of the busiest commuter hubs in the US of how many people go through there every day. And I think they've gotten a count down to really what it is, which is, you know, between 300 and 5,000 people a day. Yeah, and when you think about, we were talking earlier about like e-commerce versus traditional. One of the challenges for traditional uh, retailers is getting that foot traffic, and you know what better way than people have to walk past you every single day. Exactly. It doesn't mean that the mall is no longer a destination, but rather the transit hub in this case is the destination, and therefore retail's opportunity is to go where the people are already passing through. Absolutely, and this really, you know, to kind of pivot back to really retail real estate, you know, how are you measuring it? And I'm sure you guys have heard a lot of talk about, well, you know, it used to be sales per square foot, and now brands are really like, well, how many people come through and really digging down into how many transactions did they do today? So we know if we go into the space that we might be on par in comparison to whatever, you know, brand X, Y, and Z did. So I think that there's a, a pivot there in how you're measuring space, uh, you know, particularly retail sales space. And, and I'm curious on the selection of stores or like a, attracting certain stores there, because the traditional shopping center, which is, you know, becoming a, a thing of the past where you had anchor stores, um, how did you go about, uh, you know, attracting those stores? What was the the pitch to specific brands to say you should be here? 
Uh, before my time, so it was a lot of it was leased. I did some of the more common area stuff, but I think that the poll was this is going to be the next shopping area in New York, and downtown is really uh, redeveloping itself. And not only is there a huge amount of people going down and working there again, which is you know great for New York. If you, you know anyone lived here during nine eleven, you realize how decimated the city really was, and that they really felt. Um, not only what happened nine, after 9-11, but certainly what happened in 2008. And so to have this great comeback is an amazing thing. And then also what's going down there residentially. So, you know, I think, you know, in, you know, 2001, a lot of people were not raising families on West Street. And now they really are. And Tribeca has kind of come into itself as something else. And so I think that was really and, – and who's actually down there and what their income is was really the biggest sell. Um, and it is a very interesting property in that, you know, there's not a Saks Fifth Avenue or Bloomingdale's in that particular property. But Italy is considered the anchor, uh, which is, you know, a food store slash restaurant. And, and even if you think just like just adjacent to the Oculus or just across West Street, then you have like the Brookfield property, which has the Saks, has a Le District, you know. Right. I mean, there's a – it's interesting to see how that the combination of, of that has changed. Yes, absolutely. One thing that we've talked about a bit with some guests is about the future of cities. And one of the topics around there is the fact that you know malls traditionally were located in you know, suburbs. People drive to them. Uh, do you think that the Oculus Mall is representative and, and kind of the development, redevelopment of downtown Manhattan is emblematic of kind of how cities will be built in the future, where it's not necessarily come out to this destination for all your retail needs or your experiences, but be surrounded by it and uh, kind of the mixed-use land uh, approach to, to everything. Mixed use is is hot right now. I think this whole idea of... Um you know, cities and how they're growing is um, very interesting. Canada is obviously doing some very interesting things. Um, and Westfield was really, you know, very, very thoughtful about knowing that, you know, B, C, D malls were going away and that people were actually moving into cities. So I think that was also part of the, you know, after all, they're a public company, they want to do business. That was part of the thinking as well. And I do think, you know, real estate folks have really looked at the numbers and um, people are parents age instead of, you know, they want to downsize, but they want to downsize with a city that's got a lot of services. And that's certainly something that um, the Westfield campus provides. When we come back, we'll dig a little bit deeper into your views on where retail is going uh, and some of you know your suggestions to you know people you're consulting with. Uh, but first, you've been kind enough to bring a snack to share. Um, what did uh, what did you bring here? So I brought some pastries from the Supermoon Bakery, um, and I live downtown on the Lower East Side, which is a very interesting neighborhood from all perspectives. Um, and this is one of our newest retailers. Uh, I hope I'm not mispronouncing his name, a baker by the name of Rye Stefan, who has um, Supermoon Bakeries in San Francisco, Korea, and maybe L.A., uh, came and he is doing experiential things with baking, including the uh, crow muffin. I hope I got that right as well. So, um, and and unusual flavors. So uh, you're forewarned. The box definitely <laughs> makes it stand out. It's like there's something special going on inside exactly. this translucent, glowing box. Looks like from the moon, in fact. Exactly. Very exactly. Cool. Excited to dig in. 
Yeah, I it, please enjoy. Forewarned, like the donut is like passion fruit something, and one of the uh, sweet uh, croissants is like a matcha lemon. So, yeah, looking forward to it. Excellent. We'll be right back. Are you looking to buy a home in New York City? Get more with Preview's industry-leading smart buyer rebate. Seamlessly search listings on Preview's end-to-end buyer platform, purchase your home with the expert advice of a local agent, plus receive up to 2% cash back thanks to Preview's smart buyer commission rebate. Smart buyers get more with Preview. Go to previewapp.com backslash buyer. That's previewapp.com backslash buyer. Hey everybody, it's Tom. We enjoy bringing the show to you week after week, but we need your help. One of the best ways for listeners to discover the show are from your reviews. So let's make that happen. Go to iTunes, search Real Estate Is Your Business, and leave us a review. And while you're at it, why not a five-star rating? Rebecca, thank you so much for uh, introducing us to Supermoon. If, uh, hopefully I'm not mispronouncing that, but Supermoon. Um, uh, all delicious, savory, and sweet alike. So uh, Excellent. The debate was well worth it. <laughs> um, but getting back into it, um, you are now... The principal consultant for Wild West Retail. Uh, what is Wild West Retail focused on? So the Wild West of Retail came about because um, I was working, you know, with mall companies and they were really forward thinking as well about how do you change the relationship between tenant and landlord and it's it's an evolution it's not a revolution and i particularly have been tasked at these last couple of positions in bringing in the latest and greatest and the digital natives and you know the brands that really not only the high street wants but malls certainly want to attract and it really dawned on me and and they have been my biggest inspiration and and a lot of them some of my biggest knowledge base on what they really want and what they see the future is and if they are the future which i think we're all assuming that they are what they're saying is we want to take physical spaces we want to do retail we want to do it our way we know a lot our systems all talk to each other but we're not going to take a 10-year lease. And, um, you know, that seems to be kind of the thing that's getting stuck in a lot of people's heads. And I, I do think it's kind of going away. One of the first companies that I talked to about this was the Ministry of Supply. And I'd followed them from a time when they were just popping up in Boston. They popped up in New York. And when they really got into doing stores, I called up one of the founders and was chatting with her. And she said, you know, we are doing stores we're being really, really methodical about where they're going, what the rents are, and we're only doing three, five, and seven-year leases. We won't go any higher than that. And, you know, it was like the shortest, most powerful conversation you can have. And it really dawned on me that's where it was going. You know, I brought my own history um, of short-term leasing. Um, when 2008 happened, I pivoted out of marketing and PR for retailers have, and, and did my own business. 
And it also dawned on me then that, you know, one, there is this opening for pop-up shops and short-term leases, and uh, two, that now the world is really ready for them. When I was first doing it in 2008, you can imagine landlords looked at myself and my business partner, and it was like our money wasn't even green. So it's been a really interesting evolution um, watching the real estate industry change. And now, you know, pop-up is so popular that I'm like, you know, we could put a sticky note on the Superman box and say we were having a pastry pop-up in here. And it'd be kind of in vogue because, you know, that word is becoming so trendy. But it is also really, really, really important to how people do business. And then the other part of the Wild West of retail is really looking at kind of where is the next frontier of, you know, retail going and where are people shopping. And that goes back to having this wonderful experience at Westfield, working in a commuter hub. Uh, Westfield also has an airport um, sector to its business. And I had tenant after tenant say, hey, we had all these people come through, whether they bought from us or not, we did pretty darn well. Um, You know, we're thinking about that captured audience at an airport, or where are the other commuter hubs in the United States? What's what's coming up? And um, I really had a lot of freedom to kind of talk to these newer brands and be really open about, you know, this is what's going on in our city. And this is what's going on in other cities. Um, And if this is part of your real estate strategy, um, you know, let me help you put it together because I've kind of honed my skills in, in these categories. How receptive are some of these traditional brands that you're talking to to this kind of coming change, to the fact that as the Wild West of retail would suggest, the rules are not the same as they used to be? I think they're really open. And if you talk to uh, people at some of the bigger traditional retailers, I think they're they're so open. What is hard is getting a real strategy in place. I think there are a lot of opinions probably internally. And then what do you really pick to roll the dice on? Um, and as we all know in this room, renting a space, uh, particularly a highly trafficked, cool space um, that's got some, you know, highlight to it is going to be a expensive. And so, you know, where is the cost benefit analysis and really going and doing that? Now, as it relates to a pop-up or, you know, getting into starting a pop-up or even thinking of just like the short-term space, right? Whether it's three years or even less than three years, let's say it's one year. um, How do people approach that or make those decisions? It's a great question. You know, I think brands look at it as an experiment. And, you know, one of the brands that I um, worked with was called Love Pop Cards, and they really learned that they need to go in and at least do 90 days to find out if a space is going to work. And then you've really gotten to see the the full heartbeat. And I think a lot of other brands feel that same way. And if you're going to do 90 days, so you're going to do three months, why not do six months? Um, and particularly if you're finding if it it's going to work and you really have done your homework on it, why not go for the year? And so, you know, they came down and looked at the Oculus when there was still a wall across it and um, <laughs> you couldn't hear a lot of construction going on. So you weren't really sure how many people were going to come through. And and they rolled the dice on a new development, um, kind of got a really good feel for it. And then when they got in, they really paid close attention. And I think that's also something else that um, if you're with a newer company or a digital native company, you are one tasked with making your retail really 
you know, it's got to win the revenue that it's supposed to because you're going up against e-com, which is probably 80% of the business. So it's it's a hard battle to win. Um, and that they're really, really detailed about it. Um, while as I think if you've gotten to the size of an H&M and you're doing real estate for them, you may be uh, looking at spaces with a different lens. And as it relates to the, you were talking about the, at least it, love pop-up the card company if if you were somewhere for at least 90 days you have a good sense of the space but depending on what you're selling though that one year mark probably makes sense because you have some sense of the seasonality because like different parts of retail have a lot of seasonality to it yes exactly and i certainly you know i think most brands if they're serious if they've got some backing are looking you know at at least 365 days a year we just talked off air a little bit about you know how you put certain deals together um and i think that there's also room now to do some creative underwriting and that both the developer landlord and retailer are interested in coming to the table so that it really kind of works so that's i think an interesting component too so you talked a bit about the idea of experiences being really important to kind of the new retail uh strategy and you know i maybe a month or two ago i saw after Toys R Us's collapse started to come to the fore, I think Gary Vaynerchuk posted, um, you know, some some a talk about uh, Toys R Us hasn't evolved. Their experiences is, wasn't really there. It was just a commodity. I'm curious when you think about, you know, Toys R Us or other well-established traditional retailers. What strategy? What advice, rather, do you give to them to try to transform in? to a more experiential store so that they're not just competing against Amazon and uh, commoditizing their business? One, I think you have to really listen to your customer. Um, and hopefully they're getting some feedback both online and in stores about what is going to make the customer experience better. And I know we're talking about some of like these over-the-top experiences that retailers are offering. And well, we haven't talked about them specifically, but certainly that you've gone in and you've had this positive experience. I, I think where big retailers or more traditional retailers are even feeling kind of the pain points are, you know, how do we just get a positive customer experience going even in our sales staff? And I think that's why there's a lot of talk about, um, and this is a great example, the line is egregious. And particularly, I'm talking to two men, you go into a store, you're not known particularly as enthusiastic shoppers, you're in Uniqlo, and there's a line around the block. Are you going to wait in line? I would definitely not wait in line. <laughs> I, I absolutely hate lines. I would be buying it online in the first place. <laughs> Okay, there we go. So there we have it. So I think, you know, the the first point to traditional retailers is that they have to get over some of those pain points. So is there clienteling software that they can use? Uh, are they, can you get people out from behind that cash wrap to check people out? And there are some retailers that are on this first kind of level of how do we get to a great customer experience are doing cool things. Um, Nordstrom Rack has a little express area and that the person when I was in there saw that there was a long line and that I had one item and she ran me down in the aisle and said, just come over to my little hub and I'll, and I'll check you out. Yeah. I'll walk out of a store if they don't have an S line. If they queue us up in the separate <laughs> lines, I'm, I'm out of there. Exactly. So I think though, and then, you know, the next level is how can we do better on in the experience department? Where are the, where's the surprise and the delight? Well, I mean, I think this seems like we were talking a bit before about the cultural element from a company strategy standpoint, retailers traditionally have thought primarily about 
the things that were static, right? Their, their stores are static, their, their product lines are relatively static, but experiences is something that needs to be dynamic. It needs to be constantly changing and evolving. Um, you know, and I think in that example of the Gary Vaynerchuk video that I saw, he's talking about like Toys R Us should have had VR experiences and other things that are recognizing where their product line is going, but maybe their stores were too static to, to accommodate their strategy for sure was not thinking that, um, in that forward manner. So I feel like there's a need beyond the re- real estate, but deeper into the core of the business to think about, as you said, customer experience, and more importantly, where customers are going, but they don't even know. I, absolutely. And I think that there is a, a push, certainly, you know, from Walmart on down to, you know, how do we how do we think in a new different way? Um, and there certainly is, you know, this is a little bit of a different subject, but people in retail are hopping around quite a bit. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're an outside vendor trying to reach someone, it's hard because there's a lot of turnover, which in in some ways is really great because people are wanting to go in and, and try to rectify some of the things that have gone wrong. And they're yeah. the, the new minds, yeah. you know, that are coming out. You know, the contrasting point on the experiences front, I'm wondering if, if you have a thought on how replicatable is that? How frequent do shoppers want experiences? Like, in, continuing on the toys theme, uh, I'm thinking about the American Girl store, where my daughter went, bought her first American Girl. You can get a haircut for your doll, have lunch there. You can, your your merchandise left and right, but it's in a way that it was an event. It was, it's an right. event where, you know, my my mother, her grandmother looked forward to taking her there for years. And, but that's not something that we're going to do every weekend. Right. And I think this is where it's really, really hard for stores or retailers. So you, you do want to have something special. You want to kind of create a demand, almost like a pop-up shop does. And it's not that you can have a run leaving from your store every night, like Outdoor Voices. So, you know, I think that they're mixing it up. The other thing is, which, you know, does not really answer the question, but I think almost puts another one out there, is if you look at the articles and the data that store events are not really particularly particularly scintillating for consumers anymore either. They're really looking for that, you know, how are you going to take me higher on your brand experience? And so you really have to go out of the box. And I think it has to, one, go back and speak to what your your brand is and speak to why your consumer loves you and is loyal to you. There, there has to be a physical limitation, right? Because with e-commerce, you can program logic into what you're going to present to somebody. There's filtering. There's all these other you know, facets to that. But when it comes to physical space or a store, it's tough to move things around. Could, could there be advancements in technology that allow you to reconfigure the store more frequently, like more so than just you know, seasonal you know, store layouts? Absolutely. And I think, you know, brands are experimenting, excuse me, um, with that, that kind of thing, um, with certainly um, fast fashion, maybe not as fast as an H&M, but bringing in new things. There's a lot of collaboration going on, which I think brings an extra element. And it's not always about, you know, we're a women's brand, let's collaborate with, um, you know, a men's brand so we can go into menswear, but let's collaborate because this is something that's interesting and that our consumer is going to want to go to that next level with us. So I do think retailers are thinking in that direction. It's not all about, 
uh, let me be the most competitive brand out there and that I don't need to partner any, with anyone. It, it's that I do. There also is a ton of talk out there that talks to experience about virtual reality or augmented reality, um, where you can take a physical space and do some pretty magical things in it. Um, and, you know, video games have certainly done a great job with that. Um, and I've even heard on some podcasts where there's a company that has a like a smart mirror where you can stand in front of the mirror and it can propose ideas or sizes rather than running back and forth to you know, to the rack for something different. Absolutely. Even my mirror is judging me now. Right, exactly. And if you think about it, what's really interesting is that, you know, the dressing room is really basically the equivalent of your you know, cart on your e-commerce. And that's where you're abandoning ship a lot of times. Um, It doesn't fit right. Nobody's there to come and get you something or recommend something to you. Or maybe you're one of those shoppers that doesn't want somebody kind of waiting on you hand and foot and then kind of where do you go from there? And the smart dressing room, I think, came along to try to help uh, that that problem out so that people weren't abandoning their purchases in in the dressing room. But um, yeah, there's no doubt the physical retail environment, um, as far as experience goes, from pain points to surprise and delight is um, it is tough. And people are figuring it out. Uh, the, I think the issue is brands that are figuring it out. It's not a cookie cutter solution. It's just a solution for that particular brand. I'm curious to get your take on a company like Rent the Runway. My girlfriend's, you know, she has the membership where it's a monthly unlimited. She, you know, it's almost like a, a closet in the clouds, yes. a closet in the cloud, uh, for example, or like a Netflix of clothes uh, for women. Um, what's your take on a brand like that and where they're going? And could, you know, other brands, you know, follow that for menswear or athletic wear, or, you know, what have you? I think it's a, a great model. It's interesting on a lot of levels, and they're certainly doing very well. Um, so that's kind of a good sign. Um, I think it speaks to something societal that's going on, which is I think we kind of realized after 2008 and maybe even before that, we don't need so much stuff. And that actually, you know, not owning the dress and sending it back um, is important. And, and Rent the Runway is somewhat playing on that. Um, And the model works, I think, also because um, people are doing it who that wasn't originally part of their model. And now they're thinking, hey, you know, why don't we send this out and you can send it back to us? Well, it's a a good concept because you're one, you're not spending a fortune on things and you're actually you have access to better, better garments. Yes, absolutely. Um, And I want to say not Stitch Fix, but someone else is getting into the business that – surprised me. Maybe Gwenny B is beginning to do where they're going to rent out some clothing as opposed to, you know, just sending you a box of things. And, um, you know, flattery is the, you know, biggest form of yeah, I mean, I, copying I, is the biggest form of flattery. So <laughs> I think the, run, the runway example is interesting because it also suggests that those who, you know, might disrupt you could also become your potential partners, the brands that would have a retail establishment that would worry about returns and the like, perhaps resisted uh, being on the Rent the Runway platform, but now have to come on board in order to uh, kind of keep their their uh, brand afloat. We, we're not even afloat, but even like a luxury brand like a DVF, you know, their Rent the Runway is open to, to an audience of people that may or may not have, you know, gone out and you know used their as many dresses or been able to purchase as many dresses from uh, from that brand. 
And I still do think it's sensitive in the retail real estate space that you have somebody come in like even a real real, which is now opening stores. And I think that they're being probably welcomed in. They've really got a good model. They've honed it. Um, but what if I have an actual Louis Vuitton store and I'm welcoming the real real into a mall or in, into part of the mer merchandising mix? So there is definitely room to you know, have people get their feathers, um, you know, um, their their hairs on their back up a little bit about it. But I do think that it is, um, it's here to stay. If you look at the um, reusable sneaker market as well, there was just a huge article in the New York Times about that, that um, these, this is where really kind of retail is going as well. And it's, it's changing. So maybe it's less retail apocalypse and more to more Retail evolution. It and... really is. It really is. Because I, people still want to shop. People still want to check things out. Um, again, the, the, the example of the line and everybody wanting to get out of it and who's really still going to wait in it is that you may have checked it out and you put your purchases back, but you still go and you buy them online. And yeah. it gives you know a lot of um, clout to the guide shop. Yeah, and I feel like it, it suggests also to those uh, entrenched players that they need to evolve or die. Exactly, exactly. Rebecca, you've given us a great introduction to your views on you know, retail and real estate. And when we come back, we'll dig a little bit deeper into you as a person beyond uh, the Wild West of retail. Excellent. We'll be right back. Hey everybody, this is Vikram Iyer, former advisor to President Barack Obama. Have you been opening your Twitter account or Facebook feeds or even just talking to families and friends and wondering what the heck is going on in this country? Well, it's not as bad as you think, but we're going to unpack that for you. Join me at the American Enough podcast on the Mouth Media Network as we unpack the policies, executive orders, and daily kerfuffles that are shaping not just this administration, but the modern face of America's politics. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. Keep up with the show on Instagram and Facebook at Real Estate Biz Show and with hashtag Mouth Media. Plus, check out all of the Mouth Media Network shows at MouthMediaNetwork.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. Rebecca, you've shown us a little bit of your personality with uh, your over-the-top snack time earlier. Um, not only were they delicious, but they were also, uh, you know, Probably one of the nicest wrap boxes Without we've ever received. That so, box has got to be at least a right. $7 box <laughs> unto itself. Or, or or maybe it's like your your role in, you know, as a, a retail expert to understand the not only the, the product, but also the presentation of it. Um, so I'm curious if if one of your friends was sitting in the, you know, extra chair we have here today, how would they describe you? Yikes. Um... <laughs> I think they would um, describe me as, as certainly outgoing and, um, you know, enjoying uh, kind of being in um, in a field right now that's got a lot of bouncing around and a lot of change and that that kind of suits my personality. Um, and it's not really just about, you know, kind of moving away from, you know, what you do for a living. But I think that um, 
that's kind of been my, you know, MO. Um, Have you bounced around and changed a lot in your life and career? Um, yes and no. I've been able to do some nice pivots. So I spent, you know, about a decade, that sounds such like such a long time, um, doing PR and marketing. And I'm very happy that I kind of found my way out. Um, I do think now people have second and third and fourth and fifth degree, you know, careers, sure. which is, is a cool thing. Um, I do think also like I lived in Murray Hill for a while and if anybody lives in Murray Hill, I don't want to poo-poo on it, but you know, there's a lot of Irish bars. It's a little you're in the mid midtown, and um, I got outpriced out of Murray Hill, and that's how I ended up on the Lower East Side. And it's really of things I'm I'm really passionate about. I love my neighborhood, and I feel like it's um, you know one of the true real neighborhoods in New York. Like. If something bad happened, I really could, A, go to my neighbor and borrow something, but I could also go to the bar downstairs and, you know, they would, you know, help me as well because that bar probably was an extension of my living room when I first moved down there. So um, it, it's that kind of neighborhood. Um, and I think that's a little bit, you know, attractive to me or to my personality. And when you think of retail, because retail obviously goes beyond, you know, just pure, you know, close um even if you think of restaurants or an extension of of retail um what part of neighborhood do you feel plays into that retail experience that's such a good question and it's something that the lower east side i think is really grappling with i try to be really loyal to some of my neighborhood retailers but because it is this interesting part of town i sometimes feel like I need to go to a Uniqlo and I can't get everything down there. But I do think stores have played an amazing role in neighborhoods. Um, and often you read about them. Unfortunately, right now you read about them because they're closing and something else is taking over um, because rents are you know going up and there's a lot going on in the city. But historically, I mean, if you look at um, like the CB... Uh, BG store that got taken over by John Varvatos on the Bowery and just how much the Bowery is changing. There's also a Patagonia on the Bowery. You know, this used to be where it was all single occupancy housing. Um, so I think, you know, those brands were really intimate to the neighborhood um, and all the famous singers that came there and, and all of that. And there are certainly some <laughs> institutions, I'll refer to them, um, on the Lower East Side that um, unfortunately I've seen, you know, come and go. But, um, you know, change is the only constant as well. Do you feel like, um, you know, right now the mom-pop stores that we're referring to, they they obviously under under pressure based on online shopping and large chains, of course. Uh, and to a certain extent, it feels like their survival is right now dependent on altruism. Like, I want to maintain a neighborhood feel. Mm -hmm. Do you think that they, these mom-pop stores that don't have strategy teams and culture and digital experience teams can or, or need to evolve in the same way that the large brands we talked about earlier have to be thinking about customer experience, have to be thinking about you know, how they can transform their digital strategy, et cetera. I do. And I, I think you're right. They don't have a strategy team, but they're, they're doing the best that they can with um, a team of one or two um, to do the strategy, which is interesting. Even when I moved down to the Lori side, which is before it got as gentrified as it is now, um, there were these uh, all Jewish-owned stores, and they're now referring to them as transgenerational stores. And they kind of figure it out, you know, well, 
nightlife is really big down here. People aren't coming down to necessarily shop us. But if I have something of value and someone's out eating and drinking, maybe they'll come in and buy something. And even um, the Lori side bid said, why don't you change your hours and stay open a little later and you might capture some of this. People are used to coming down to the Lower East Side and having all those retail gates pulled shut. I'm not saying it was the most uh, effective strategy, you know, ever to to come upon someone. But I think then when some new retailers rolled in, they realized what a big presence nightlife was and that if you wanted to make money, you had to kind of um, try to fit into that as well. And not to offend future clients um, <laughs> or to, you know, pick between like your your favorite children but what are some of your favorite brands right now you know maybe three three to five brands that you're focused on that you think are just doing it right um without having to index or order them in any way (laughs) well and this is you know the personal part of the show i have a uh issue with jewelry (laughs) Um, And there are some very interesting uh, jewelry designers out there right now. So um, one is called Roxanne Oxlin, and she's right here in New York. Um, And she does really great stuff that is made out of tile and put together. And um, it's just beautiful. It's colorful. Um, I don't know if, you know, how much attention she's getting, but I follow her on Instagram. If she opened a store, I think it would be uh, certainly very cool, and it's it's a hard category. But one of the things that she's doing is that you can actually come up to her showroom, and she puts out all the beautiful colored tiles, and you can make your own bracelet. And of course, companies are doing this as you know team building, and then friends are doing it as kind of a night out. Um, Another store that I think is very interesting, and it's also something that's trending, um, is the Sill. They had their first store in my neighborhood, and it's plants. Um, And again, their um, product actually lends itself to kind of an experience. So uh, you can do anything really from bring your dead plants in, and they'll give you an assessment, which I don't have an incredibly green thumb, to going and making your own terrarium, which I know some of these things have, you know, obviously been done before. And then, you know, they're really feeding lots of different sides of their business because it's not just the individual you know, if you're an office building and you want to do something incredible with plants and greenery, um, and again, I do think it's trending that, you know, they're there for you. Um, so that's another business that I certainly, you know, have my my eye on. Um, and this is very, very on trend, which is, you know, retail and fashion are having a hard moment. Um, but, you know, kind of all the boutique um, workouts that are out there, which I just went through a round of trying to find a new one. Um, and it was very interesting. So I was going to different classes. And I found Orange Theory was a really good fit for me. Um, but you are seeing a lot of um, really boutique fitness coming in and taking really interesting spaces. Now, do you think you know, companies like ClassPass, where do you see a company like that going as it relates to this boutique trend? 
I think it's good for them um, because you can try a lot of different things. What is hard is that uh, the fitness world also has this combination where they want to get you hooked. So they'll give you, you know, a week or two for free um, and then they want you to sign up and that might work a little bit against ClassPass. But um, I think, you know, again, people are taking better care of themselves. And if you like to kind of bounce around and you don't like to have the same instructor every time and you don't, that's not something you crave class pass is great excellent this has been a great conversation uh you know thanks for sharing your views and uh your background um we'd like to give everyone um a chance to share a final thought with the audience uh what would you like to share today That's a great question. Um, You know, I think that uh, if you're a retailer, keep at it and keep rolling with the changes um, and look at it in uh, as a time of excitement and not a time of, you know, um, that it's really, really tough, because I really do think it's exciting from the retail real estate aspect to kind of what you can do with a brand to uh, even what your product is. And for folks that want to reach out and connect, uh, what's the best way to reach you and the Wild West of retail? So you can more than happy to email me at Rebecca at the Wild West of retail or probably even easier. You can um, Instagram me at the exact same address, the Wild West of retail. Great. Uh, Again, thank you for joining us today. And for Scott. Bye, everyone. Thanks so much for having me. I'm Tom. And real estate is your business. You've been listening to Real Estate Is Your Business. To suggest guests or content for this show or to become a sponsor, email us at realestatebizshow at mouthmedianetwork.com. Keep up with the show on social media at Real Estate Biz Show. That's Real Estate B-I-Z Show. Episodes available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, along with our website, realestateisyourbusiness.com. Produced by Mouth Media Network and brought to you by Preview. Copyright 2018. All rights reserved. No portion of the episode may be distributed or published without the express written permission of the producers. Thanks for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.